what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. How do you operate in a world that's not designed for you? How do you make sense of instructions that weren't written for you? How do you navigate expectations that weren't set with you in mind? These are big, personal questions, and thankfully, we've started taking a look at the answers at a cultural level and not just at the individual level. But until we see some serious change to a culture that privileges white, male, thin, neurotypical, heterosexual, cisgendered, hierarchical, and non-disabled ways of living, we've got some adapting to do. And it's easy to think that these adaptations are a constraint, a limitation of what's possible. And honestly, sometimes they are. But often, these adaptations can be leveraged as strengths. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that makes business make sense for small business owners. Truthfully, I didn't think questions like these belonged to me for a long time. I thought I'd been gifted with talent, intelligence, and at least a bit of charisma, and that I really should be able to make it all work pretty easily. It wasn't until I ran straight into a wall of burnout after college that I started to question whether that was really true. Now, it's been 16 years since I hit that wall, since I sat on my professor's couch and cried that I just didn't know if grad school was the next step for me. Since my mom took the truck up to Syracuse to move down the furniture, we'd already moved into my grad school apartment. And over those 16 years, I've tried to fix myself. I've tried to become the kind of person who operates in this world naturally, who follows the instructions to a T, and who easily meets and exceeds expectations. But last year, I got curious. As I talked about some of my own breakthroughs and personal successes in terms of learning to manage myself better and execute on ideas, I got gentle messages from folks urging me to be careful about not taking neurodivergent experiences into account in the way I explained what I was working with. And at first, my reaction to these messages was the deep concern that comes along with inadvertently harming someone or making them feel like they don't belong. But then, once I understood their experiences better, I started to wonder Is my experience really that different than theirs? Or rather, do my experiences fit the norms as neatly as I thought they did? I found myself wanting to reply that I appreciated their messages truly, and that this doesn't come easily to me. It's the hardest work I've done in my life. Over time, the evidence grew and grew. No, my experience didn't fit the norms. It might be different than other people's experiences, but my sense that I didn't belong to the shoulds and supposed tos of culture, relationships, productivity, or emotions became clear. And at the same time, I was hearing even more women talk about themselves and their experiences in ways that felt haltingly familiar. Nervously, 
I brought up my suspicion to Sean. I've started to wonder if I'm autistic, I said. And to his credit, he didn't say, yeah, I knew that already. But he did listen with an I've been waiting for this conversation sort of composure. And while this knowledge has laid bare some very real challenges I have in navigating the world and my relationships, it's also helped me make sense of my strengths and see them as things that are genuinely unique. I might not remember to ask a client how she's feeling or happily make small talk during a meeting, but I can tease apart complex problems and examine their component parts. I can focus for hours on end on work that I love. I can extend that focus to analyzing all manner of challenges from the personal to the strategic. And those, well, those are strengths I can leverage. They're strengths that I can make sure are core to the way my companies operate and my role in making them thrive. Now this month, I decided to indulge myself a bit with our focus. I wanted to talk to other neurodivergent business owners about how they leverage their strengths in their businesses. It's part personal research project and part public service. The public service part is the part where even if you're not neurodivergent, you start to see how your own strengths can give you creative direction in how you build your business. You can filter how you build your business through what truly makes you feel effective, alive, and capable. You can adapt your business instead of always adapting yourself. Now, I could think of no one I wanted to kick off this series more with than Brittany Berger. Brittany's personal leadership and advocacy was some of the first that made me think, huh. Brittany is the founder of Work Brighter, a platform that provides resources and encouragement for neurodivergent, disabled, and chronically ill people who want to make productivity techniques work for them. Brittany and I talk about how she manages her energy, how she structures her day, and why self-disclosure has been key to finding her way, as well as, and this is crucial, why she can write about the intersection of pop culture, productivity, and content marketing like no one else. Now, let's find out what works for Brittany Berger. Brittany Berger, welcome back to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's just dive into the deep end today, shall we? Um, I think. I think. I feel like you're a person who's game for <laughs> diving yeah, into the deep game. end. Yeah, always game. Uh, speaking of which, you are a vocal advocate for disabled, chronically ill, and neurodivergent people, and that's something that you know. There's so much or there can be so much stigma around. There certainly is cultural stigma around, but you are so open with sharing your own experiences and with your advocacy. What led you to that level of openness that you have today and this ability that you have to just to share what's going on with you in such a matter of fact way? Um, Honestly, I just got tired of holding it all inside because in every other area of my life as well, I am a complete oversharer. I am like, I used to call myself the TMI monster. Um, (laughs) And yeah, so it's just, it's my natural tendency to disclose a lot of information to people. And for a long time, I did uh, use my health and stuff like that as an exception. 
but it just got really tiring and exhausting holding like holding it in and eventually you know around the time that I changed kind of everything in my life I just got I stopped all the things that were making me so tired and part of that was just bottling it up mm-hmm. um you know I just once once I really realized that it only made things worse for me you know it became harder to justify for myself yeah so a lot of it comes from the fact of just fatigue um and then a lot of it comes from like anger um I spent a really long time of my life thinking that I was broken that I was the problem um and that I was the only one feeling the way that I did uh and now that I realize I'm not um it makes me really mad that so many of us think we are and I want to make sure that that number uh goes down um So it's not really from a selfless place. Like, I am doing it for me. It's great that it helps others, too. (laughs) Yes. I think those those are the best kinds of win-win situations, right? When we can do the thing that is like, I need this. Oh, and also it helps other people. That's wonderful. Exactly. Um, I'm curious if there was a particular moment or situation that really led you to speaking out on behalf of others as well. I don't think it was any one thing. I think it was this kind of what I like to call a slow burn between maybe like 2016 and 2018. And that was the time when I really like had the realization um, about the connection between, you know, the way I worked and my workaholism to my health, both physical and mental. It's when I started slowly changing that extracting myself from communities and environments that were very hustly um, because I realized that I just couldn't surround myself with that kind of stuff anymore. And so it was just a slow journey over the past few years. Um, And then uh, something, something that people, especially like my parents and like older people when I was younger always told to me was that I'm very ahead of my time. And, you know, in the past, it was usually said to me in kind of like a patronizing, consoling way, like, you know, kind of explaining why the other kids didn't like me or something like that or didn't see things the way that I do. Um, And so I didn't see that as a good thing for a while, but no, I kind of do. Um, I realize that I see a lot of stuff in a way that other people aren't dealing with it yet. They might not be as many years or honestly like decades into dealing with their disability or their neurodivergence or their mental illness. Um, And so like I've been there, like I know so many friends getting diagnosed with ADHD right now and um, their their whole journey of like processing it um, is so familiar to me and I've like found it be I, fa- I found it really enjoyable to like step in and be like oh yeah here are the memes from when I was there um, and stuff <laughs> like that and just like here here are the memes here are the articles here are the books I read and stuff like that and so I kind of feel like it's kind of cool now that I am um, kind of ahead of my time I guess um, and I kind of look at it as being a, a time lord or a time lord's companion because you know I'm a Doctor Who fan and um, yeah they they are ahead of their time and behind their time and all over the time and they are loved yeah. uh, I am down for the Doctor Who references that is excellent <laughs> um, and I, I have questions about your your pop culture obsessions later on um, but I love this idea of being 
being ahead of your time. Um, I think it's often something that people have said to me as well, um, or and certainly something that I have felt like, oh God, I was just like three years too early on this idea, right? Yeah. Um, I'm curious if there's any other places that you see that popping up today as a strength for you. Something, you know, are there any other ways that you utilize or leverage that ability to sort of be ahead of the curve? I think that I've been really ahead of the curve with uh, no code and Mm. content repurposing. Both of those are things that have been like focuses of my my two businesses respectively. Uh, Since 2016, um, I've known since before I even went full time in my business that when I did the, the content marketing stuff would all be focused on repurposing and refreshing and what I've come to call content remixing. Um, And it was really, really hard to convince people to prioritize that in their content workflows at the beginning to the point that like I really kind of gave up on going all in on it for client work. Um, It is like the core of what I did with education, but like I just couldn't spend so much time convincing people that they needed to care about it before selling them on the packages for that. And I'm only now getting to a point where like people put out on Twitter, I'm looking for help with content repurposing or does anyone know anyone or something like that. Like it's, we're just now getting to the point where it's something people are ready to realize that they need and that other people are starting to offer it as like productized services and stuff like that. And I like, I couldn't even go as hard on it as I wanted to in the beginning because the, the, the industry's kind of awareness around it was just so different back then. Uh, and same with no code. Uh, when I first created my content repurposing planner, uh, it was, in Airtable, and I wanted to do Notion, but not enough people knew what Notion was back then. Uh, but finally, this year, I came out with a Notion version because it wouldn't have to be a thing where I also taught every customer that bought it how to use Notion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that just all feels very familiar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, are, do you feel like, especially with the content repurposing, is that something that you're known for now and it's benefiting you that you were early on it, even if it was frustrating at the time? Or is it something that you've kind of moved on from in terms of like your brand or caring about that part of your reputation? I definitely haven't moved on from it, but I also kind of like came to terms with like, oh, I've got to kind of meet people where they're at. So for example, um, like just originally with services, I wanted to offer just content refreshing and repurposing. Um, No one really wanted just that. But what I was able Mm -hmm. to do was, you know, get the people that came to me interested in content creation, work for them for a little bit, and then, you know, introduce repurposing and remixing into the mix. And um, I've been able to kind of with the stability of the content writing income, kind of use that to experiment more with the product stuff. And so a lot of I've come out with like a lot of different products and what off workshops and stuff like that, that is all focused on remixing um, and stuff like that. Uh, Because yeah, it is the end game. But I just realized that like, oh, like I couldn't directly meet people at that point. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about Work Brighter. You say at Work Brighter that we need to do more than work smarter. We need to work 
brighter. Can you sort of set the stage by defining what working brighter actually means? Yeah, I like to think of it as doing more than just working smarter. So it means that like considering all of the kind of traditional productivity rules and stuff like that, but taking them with a grain of salt, taking what works for you, um, kind of leaving the rest. It's just that I kind of originally when I started the newsletter that Work Brighter kind of bloomed from, um, it was called Work Smarter um, and it was <laughs> just about productivity. Um, but I kind of was just got so frustrated at a point with the way that all of the productivity and uh, personal development, self-improvement, self-care, all of that kind of genre of advice um, was thought of in such a narrow way, like inside the box. I wanted to think outside the box. Um, I've now come to realize the box is capitalism. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Um, like, you know, just thinking about productivity in terms of work when I my first memories of productivity were about like doing homework on the bus home from school, like mm. not for any like productive reason, but so that once I got home to where the TV is, I could watch more TV. Um, so it was never, never like focused on the work, the capital produced or anything like that. Um, my approach to productivity has always been like minimizing the stuff I don't like doing and that's hard to do to make more time for and time and energy for the stuff that I do. Um, but I started, you know, getting more into the productivity space and the uh, personal development space and found that just in most cases that wasn't the way it was being talked about. And it was just so narrowly defined. Productivity was just about like your paid job, like your work. And then self-care was something that you did like just enough of to be able to go back to work. Like, I remember I had a boss who um, on Friday afternoons would be like, go home, rest up, relax all weekend so that you can come back strong on Monday. Um, and so it was like, yeah, we want you to relax, but only because it makes you a stronger worker. Um, being a worker is still the primary focus. And a lot of people still have that mindset when they're a business owner, too, where self-care and taking care of yourself is really just something to do because of productivity and they don't really like see it as having value on its own. I just got so tired of all that um, coming from someone who was very, very deep in that world when I first started all this. Um, so I kind of saw that and saw and felt that working smarter was too narrow. It was too black and white. It was too rigid. It was too suit and tie. And working brighter felt colorful, kind of like the two portions of The Wizard of Oz, like the black and white portion and then the Technicolor portion. <laughs> I love all of the examples and metaphors you just <laughs> shared there. Um, and I really appreciate the flip from maximizing the amount you can produce to minimizing the stuff that is not fun for you. Um, that is a great way to flip that. And I, I don't think I've heard you say that before. I may not have been paying attention, <laughs> but I really like it. And I think it's really helpful for people, especially for those of us who are trying to slowly and painfully reprogram all of the capitalist uh, programming that we have been subject to over the course of our lives. Um, it's just, yeah. it's such a great reframe. Yeah, like one thing that, you know, as entrepreneurs, a lot of us um, have kind of internalized the mindset that we shouldn't be doing any admin. That's all stuff that can be so easily outsourced. Um, but 
I have never been willing to give up a lot of my admin because I love it. And um, I know we're going to talk about energy management later, but like it's the perfect thing for me to do when I don't have enough energy to really Mm -hmm. do creative work or the more kind of CEO focused stuff. Uh, But I also kind of want to be working or I just want to have my laptop open on the couch uh, while I watch TV. And so it's not time. The time that I spend on admin is not time is not it's not taking time away from the deeper work in my case because I've balanced the ratios correctly. And so I don't want to give up the stuff that I enjoy doing, even though it technically could be outsourced. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'd love to talk about how your experiences with illness and neurodivergence influence the way you conceive of working brighter today. What is it about your experience of those things that helps you think differently about productivity? I think that it's just that the traditional productivity rules, um, they were written for a workforce that didn't really have anyone like me in it. It left out so many people, like systematically. Uh, And so, you know, like the Stephen Covey stuff or the um, Peter Drucker stuff, like that was all for such a different workforce that was even more ableist than the one we have now. And so at the beginning, um, so like ever since I started my career, um, I tried those rules and kind of identified that they weren't for me. And so since the beginning, Work Brighter has been about going beyond, beyond those rules. And at first I just interpret it as these rules aren't for everyone. Um, and so working brighter means, you know, kind of personalizing, personalizing productivity for us. Over time that I realized that what I used to classify as my obsession with productivity uh, was really just struggling to self-manage with my neurodivergence mm. and my chronic illness. Uh, like we talked about joy before um you know with adhd if i'm not like fully stimulated at all times i'm just you know like the work isn't going to happen if i can't figure out a fun and stimulating way for me to do it and when it comes to i think a lot of my systems work really probably is tied to my uh my autism because i need things so explicit um Mm -hmm in order to make sense of them. And so, you know, I have had SOPs and systems for everything since long before like anyone else needed to come into my business and see them because I needed them for me. And yeah, so over over time, I realized that, oh, it's not just that these rules aren't for everyone. It's that, oh, they're not for like disabled or neurodivergent people. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, Speaking of which, I just saw on Instagram, and I don't know if it came out today or if my feed was showing me something that was a slightly older, but you just announced that Working Brighter is now explicitly, or working, yeah, working, work brighter is now explicitly (laughs) for chronically ill, disabled, neurodivergent people. Can you say a little bit more about what made you focus in on serving that community? Sure. So I think that the overall brand is still gonna speak to a little bit of a wider audience because um, that overall still 
you know, getting the wider community to, you know, divest from hustle culture does serve disabled and neurodivergent people. Um, but the membership itself is going to be exclusively for us, um, just because I realize it always has been, um, you know, thinking about who's been in the membership over time. Um, it's always been small enough that I know pretty much everyone and every you know, I would say that at least 75% of people that have ever joined this membership have been, you know, one of those four categories, if not multiple. Um, and the other 25%, you know, like, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually they did find out they had ADHD. And so it's just kind of, it's always been there. Because like I said, people that have been called to this idea of working brighter, um, I don't know if we all realized it at the time, um, but what we had in common wasn't just this belief, it was also the cause of this belief. You'll hear more from Brittany Berger in just a minute, but first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by the What Works Network. We wanted to take a look back at everything we've accomplished as a community at the What Works Network over the last year. And honestly, even though we've been living it, we were pretty astonished. Here's a quick look at what we discovered. We hosted 104 events, including 42 Monday huddles, 12 hot seat coaching sessions, 12 flash masterminds, and four virtual conferences that themselves included over 20 hours of live programming. Our members downloaded recordings of these events 3,489 times on our private podcast feed. 90% of our 720 members are active. There were 2,184 posts and articles posted, and over 60% were generated by our members. On those posts, there were 14,927 comments and over 34,000 cheers. We've released three new programs and resources as part of the membership, the Commitment Blueprint, Subtle, and the Stronger Business Playbook, which itself includes 24 tools and templates. We've led members through 12 deep dives and sent 50 members-only newsletters with recaps of top conversations and additional learning. And our community advocate, Shannon Paris, conducted almost 70 one-on-one -on -one sessions with members. Now, one post, one comment, one event, or even one deep dive can seem like a small thing. But over the course of the year, it adds up to a culture of continual learning, a practice of improvement, and a gratitude for progress over perfection. And that's really what building stronger businesses together is all about. There's nothing magical, no sure thing, no formulas. There's just the regular practice of learning, sharing, and experimenting to find what works. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be opening the What Works Network to new members for the last time at our current price. When the doors close, the price will double. We've heard over and over again how valuable being part of the What Works Network is, and we believe it's time for the membership fee to match that value. So if you've been thinking about joining the What Works Network, this month it's go time. Be sure to sign up at explorewhatworks.com network to get notified when membership opens up.
What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. It's the perfect time to simplify your business and your life. Creating content, building a movement, and leading a community is hard work. But it doesn't have to mean hassling with a host of software services, social media platforms, and customer management systems. Mighty Networks is the simple way to bring people together, deliver high-quality content, and spread your message all while making your business easier to run too. Mighty Networks combines key functions like building a community, online course management, content creation, networking, events, and payment processing so that you have an all-in-one platform for running your business. We use Mighty Networks to power the What Works Network. We offer a behind-the-scenes look at podcast interviews, host members-only events, help members support each other, facilitate ongoing conversations about important topics, and collect membership fees. It's so much simpler than the collection of apps we'd cobbled together before. Start simplifying your life and business while providing a top-notch experience to your customers with Mighty Networks. Get started free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. So you mentioned that uh, having really explicit procedures is key to uh, working with your autism, that finding fun and enjoyable ways to do the work is key to working with your ADHD. What are some of the other ways that you've noticed uh, your, your sort of interpretation of working brighter actually becoming a real strength for how you run your business? I think some other things, and this is a thing has more to do with my chronic illness, which just mm. causes so much fatigue and brain fog, is that I am extremely selective. Um, you know, like one of my personal mottos is ruthlessly prioritize. Um, I also like to call it being creatively lazy um, because my need to conserve energy so much. Um, I, I need to ruthlessly prioritize. Um, and so because so much of my energy is just spent like, processing and existing in my environment um and so a lot of like i said a lot of my first experiences with productivity were really based on conserving my energy and stuff like that like there was the tv story that i love um watching mary kate and ashley so little time um but like if i had to think about the first time i ever batched it would be when I was recovering from ankle surgery and um, my parents' house has multiple floors. And so I used to try to just go down the steps from my bedroom once and like I would attach a bag to my crutches and I would just like fill it with different snacks and different drinks and stuff like that and like hitch it on and then grab stuff for like hours and hours and then crutch back up the steps. It was always just like stuff like that. Um, It was always about saving energy more than saving time. And I think that another strength is that, I know this is different for everyone with autism, so this obviously isn't a generalization, but for me, I feel like I don't internalize societal norms as much as other people do, especially since I've started noticing them and kind of, so it's kind of a combination of being neurodivergent along with just work I've done on myself not to do that um but a lot of times kind of thinking the way society tells me to doesn't even occur to me anymore and I definitely think with business that's a strength because a lot of stuff that I think a lot of people would assume to do just doesn't occur to me for better or for worse (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Uh, that uh, feels very familiar to me. <laughs> I, I agree that for me, it's very much a strength as well. You know, uh, having to sort of explicitly connect the dots for other things that people are just sort of assuming or taking for granted. And it helps me see opportunities or potential problems that other people wouldn't see. And at the same time, yes, there's also <laughs> some limitations there as well. Um, all right. So you've teed up the subject of energy management really well for me. So thank you for that. Um, you know, a lot of productivity enthusiasts talk about time management. As you said, you talk about energy management. First, can you define what energy management is? Sure. So I like to say that energy management isn't letting go of all of the other productivity tactics, but it's using it as a using your um, your personal energy levels as a filter to put the rest of them through. Um, so once you know, I guess. I guess in a way, energy management is kind of just like honing your self-awareness around your productivity. Um, because once you know your energy levels and rhythms, how they fluctuate throughout the day and week and stuff like that, it becomes really easy to know you know, what time of day is best for you to write or what time of day um, is best for you to do your admin or take a break. And just it becomes a lot easier to arrange your life to expend not even just like minimal amounts of energy, but also energy at the right time. Um, I actually just published a blog post on this this morning, but one thing that I used to always do was the quote unquote, eat the frog, mm -hmm. but I am not a morning person. I such a night owl. I am always so creative of night. I've always loved writing at night. But for the first like five years of my career, that's when I would do for fun writing and all of my actual work, I would try doing first thing in the morning. And the first time that I just shifted my work writing back a few hours just to the afternoon, so not even my prime hours, it took about half the time to write the same amount. And so it doesn't matter if you know you have the most organized task management system in the world if you're scheduling things for when you have the wrong energy. Like you might have in your task management system that, oh, this is gonna take me 45 minutes, but that's 45 minutes of aligned energy. And if you're actually doing the task without you know, the right kind of energy alignment, it will take an hour and a half. So it's kind of putting, it, putting energy first before your uh, task management or batching or anything else like that. And it's kind of very similar to uh, spoon theory in the disabled community. Um, like I had heard of energy management kind of as a productivity tactic, maybe around 2013, uh, but I don't think I really understood how important it was and how much easier it made my life until I had a therapist who specialized in chronic illness mention spoon theory to me and I kind of put the two things together. Okay, I'm not familiar with spoon theory. Can you give us the, the quick 101 on that? Sure, so spoon theory um, is this concept based on an essay on butyoudontlooksick.com. Mm. And it is, um, I forget the author's name right now, but it is um, kind of about how she explained her fatigue related to lupus uh, to a friend. And so the story is that they were in a diner and there were all these extra spoons around. And so she was kind of explaining that, you know, when you're when you're healthy and able-bodied, you wake up and you kind of have more or less unlimited spoons. You can just keep going until the end of the day and you just have as many spoons as you need. But 
when you are dealing with chronic illness that affects your energy, then you have a very limited amount of spoons. Uh, and those spoons change every day. Um, and honestly, my my favorite way of explaining it um, that kind of stems from spoon theory, kind of the way it's been adapted, is the broken cell phone battery. Because mm. I think a lot of us know that experience where if your phone's not working great, um, sometimes you can charge it all night, but it still won't fully charge. Sometimes a five-minute call will, you know, drain it 20%. Otherwise, it won't do anything. Uh, sometimes it says it's charged to 70%, but it's really at 20 um, And you just never know what to expect from it. Um, and that's kind of what chronically ill bodies are. And so it just becomes a whole game of managing the spoon usage or cell phone battery usage. That's a great metaphor as someone with a broken phone battery. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Yeah, because I feel like we've all been there um, and we've all gone through that, you know, uh, battery rationing game. um, And that's kind of what energy management with chronic illness is. Yeah, that is so helpful. Uh, So you mentioned that part of energy management is really honing your self-awareness around what your energy levels are, when you have energy for different kinds of things. What are some of the tools or routines or or ways of understanding your own energy uh, that have worked for you to hone that self-awareness? So I really love energy tracking. Uh, It's not something that you necessarily need to do on an ongoing basis, but I usually try to track my energy for maybe a few weeks a year, maybe like one week a quarter, uh, just to kind of understand, um, you know, how things are changing with the season of, you know, the the weather that we're in or the season of work that we're in. and what's going on in my life outside of work. But I like to track my energy, my productivity, and my mood. And uh, on WorkBrighter, I have a few different trackers that you can use to do this yourself. Um, And yeah, so I like to track the three of those things so that I don't just see uh, when my energy levels are highest and lowest throughout the day and week, um, but I also can see how that kind of relates to my mood. Because like, if I'm doing a task that... I feel really energetic during, but also really miserable during, I still am going to want to kind of make an adjustment to how I do that work um, and stuff like that. Um, How do you differentiate between mood and energy? So this might be something that I'm more naturally attuned to because of my Mm -hmm. chronic illness, because like I know what it's like to be like happy and excited, but also just have no energy to express it. Um, but yeah, I kind of try to look at um, my my energy is usually more kind of my physical level of energy, whereas my mood might be kind of a mental level in, on a 1 mm. to 10 scale. Um, so yeah. Well, I'm going to start paying closer attention to that now. <laughs> the difference <laughs> between that. I, I am sure that it's there and I need to hone my self-awareness. So thank you for that. Yeah, like I feel like sometimes I'm doing work that I'm enjoying. I could wanna go on for hours, but like my eyes are drooping, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know? So that might be, you know, like you're enjoying your work, but you're not bringing the right energy to it right now. That makes a ton of sense. All right, I wanna to, I think, shift gears a little bit and talk more about how you view your unique set of strengths. Um, Because I think strengths are so personal and we all 
kind of experience what is a strength for us in different ways. And so I'm curious if there are any personal strengths that you are really proud of that we haven't talked about yet, um, that we that even from the outside, we might not be consciously aware of, you know, if we're following along with your work. I don't know how much is noticeable to other people or not. That's not something I'm great at in general. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the system stuff is something I'm proud of just because it is the way my brain works. Um, and, you know, I think that makes me really good at connecting the dots and seeing the big picture and the forest for the trees in a way that I think other people are capable of but forget to do. Um, but I think that kind of my focus is good at zooming in and out quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that also gives me some unique ways to talk about productivity and hustle culture and capitalism um, in ways that other people don't experience. Um, like between the way that I connect dots differently and the way that my lived experience is different from other people that talk about hustle culture, um, I just think that I can bring stuff to that conversation a lot of people can't like i'm working on kind of coming up with an essay or something like that writing about how a lot of the same really toxic productivity habits they come from kind of these old school um kind of christian mindsets i'm not sure of like the sect um or stuff like that um but it kind of it comes from kind of like the same myths that have been spread throughout culture that a lot of the conspiracy theories fueling anti-Semitism do. Um, and so that hustle culture actually has this weird tie to anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories that um, I don't think anyone with that that doesn't get the the specific flavor of hate in their DM inbox that I do, um, mm. I don't think they'd connect. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> In my book proposal, there is a chapter where I talk about uh, Protestant work ethic. So I feel yes. you on the yeah, it is. A, it is a major problem. Um, as someone with a lot of Protestant work ethic, uh, and really trying to dismantle that for myself, I am I cannot wait to read this essay. I am very excited about it. Yeah. It's still like the dots are still connecting in my brain um, and I'm trying to speed them up. <laughs> yeah. Um, OK, let's talk about pop culture, shall we? <laughs> you have such a brilliant way of tying your work to pop culture. And I love it. It makes me so happy every time I see you post something that has us any kind of reference in it. It's just such a delight to consume. Um, I think a lot of people would love to be able to make those kinds of creative connections, but they can't connect the dots like you do. What do you think it is about the way you think or process things that allows you to turn this passion that you have for TV and music into really helpful metaphors and frameworks for thinking about the things that are important to you work-wise? I think it comes from how immensely I study pop culture. Like, I don't passively consume Netflix um, or TV or a movie or something like that. Like, watching a new movie is a whole thing for me. Like, before I watch the movie, I usually try to read some stuff um, about, like, the director. You know, afterwards, I read reviews. Like, I really immerse myself in the industry more than I think most consumers of the industry do. And I 
just, you know, I kind of learned the inside outs of it. Like I said, I'm good at connecting dots, I think. Um, and so between just paying more attention to the stuff I'm watching than I think most people sitting on their couch watching TV do and doing research, reading. I mean, like I have entire books on the structure of sitcoms over and how they've changed throughout history. Um, I have an entire book on Clueless. I have an entire book on Friends. Um, like I need I, the book on Clueless. It's so good. Um, and it's got okay. Send me the title then. <laughs> it's called As If. Oh, perfect. <laughs> because of course it is. Um, yeah. So I really study this stuff, and I learn it inside out. And so my brain, you know, just thinks in terms of this stuff. Um, and so I, I think in terms of pop culture quotes and analogies and stuff like that. And so I think that that's one of the benefits of having hobbies and interests outside your work. Because I know that like on the content side of my business, people will ask me like, oh, how can I use pop culture references like you? And I say, don't, um, you know, mm. figure out what you care about as much as I care about TV and do that you know like i see a lot of people who use um like gardening and uh like nature metaphors in ways that i love and have actually gotten me more interested in gardening um you know or doing you know a lot of metaphors around exercise or if you're really interested in world history then drawing analogies to historical events um but i think the better you know something the naturally better you can explain it and talk about it especially to an outsider uh, and I think that's really important when it comes to references in your copy, because something that I'm really proud of with my pop culture references is that I feel like I drop them in a way that if you understand them, they add to the voice. But if you have never heard of Doctor Who or something like that, like it doesn't necessarily take away. Um, like I know how to provide context around it to kind of make sure people can get the joke, even if they've never heard of the thing that I'm referencing. Um, and if you can't do that with pop culture, what can you do that with? Mm, that is such a good insight. I love that. Um, I would love to know for you, do you find that the idea for a piece of content, like, or or maybe you decide, oh, I wanna write about this problem or I wanna write about uh, this question, does that piece come first or does the sort of like, I wanna write about Clueless or I wanna use Clueless as a way to talk about something, what should I talk about? Which comes first for you? It depends on the ideas. Um, so kind of the things that are more of a heavy pop culture focus, it usually comes from you know studying the industry and making an important connection. Mm -hmm. uh, so something like about how Cardi B had a uh, really big focus on collaborations and joint ventures the year that she really broke through from you know um, like the hip hop charts to the mainstream charts. Or that, you know, Billy Joel remasters a ton of music and it makes his, uh, like, royalty collection and library so much bigger. Um, you know, things like that. Um, stuff like that, and I usually kind of, you know, realize dedicated. But then when I'm just writing, I think of pop culture references and stuff like that. Like, um, I was writing something Monday where I had a pop cult where I came up with a pop culture reference in the moment and it's not like a big focus of the piece now I need to like find it 
Go find it. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Hold on. (laughs) Content calendar. Where are you? Um, I was just like so proud of it. Um, It just came to me in the in the moment. And that was part of what I was proud of. But it just really fit. I love when that happens. Yeah, and it's just like it's just a passing. It's like a um, it's a segue between two different topics. Like, mm. um, for example, there's one thing on the sales page for um, my content remix planner, uh, where it's talking about how um, marketing is so much harder with you know scattered, inconsistent scheduling. Um, and I am still angry about ABC kind of sabotaging happy endings and don't trust the V in apartment 23. And I say that, um, you know, inconsistent scattered scheduling is what killed happy endings. Don't let it happen to your content. Um, and so that's just like an aside. You could totally skim that line and like miss any reference. Like, you know, it's not the focus of the piece. Um, and so that was something I just thought of in the moment. But then sometimes I do kind of come up with, you know, more of the pop culture is the topic versus mm-hmm. uh, kind of an aside, something just kind of a peek into my head in the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I loved your piece on on Cardi B. That was, it was so <laughs> smart and so uh, helpful, I think, if you've not thought about that particular topic, you know, get, breaking out through collaborations. Um, it's so important and you communicated it in such a, a fun way. Um, all right, Brittany, as we start to wrap up here, um, I think I would, you know, I would just really love to know what you're excited about right now. What are you working on? What's going on with you that is is energizing you? I have really um, picked blogging back up again lately, and it, I have been loving it. Um, I kind of just have spent so many years where I was so focused on um, social media and writing for clients and writing lots of emails uh, that, you know, regular blog posts that weren't necessarily tied to a content strategy in the moment, but that I know I can use, you know, for a promotion or something later on. Um, So I have been doing that. I've been publishing, I think, close to two posts a week for the past month and a half now um, and so there's been lots of new content for work writer things that have been on my content ideas list for years that I am finally knocking out and getting published um, and so that has been really energizing me right now that's awesome Brittany thank you so much for sharing your story an inside look at your business an inside look at how you think about productivity we really ran the gamut today <laughs> and I know people are really going to appreciate it so thank you Thank you. I've learned so much from the way Brittany speaks up for people who are often denied a voice, to the way she sets boundaries and manages her own energy, to the way she never misses an opportunity to turn pop culture into a teachable moment. You can learn more about Brittany Berger at workbrighter.co. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. And Sean McMullen is the fearless captain that keeps this podcast production ship afloat. Get more of What Works delivered to your inbox every Thursday. I share my thoughts on building a stronger business, plus the articles, podcast episodes, or videos that are helping me make business make sense in our new 
newsletter, What Works Weekly. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to sign up for free.